Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Call Back Yesterday, the podcast about somewhere in time. I'm John Raby, and I wish that I was on Mackinac Island this weekend celebrating the 40th anniversary of the release of Somewhere in Time with the hundreds of fans of the movie who have gathered there to celebrate safely, to dress up like it's 1912, to enjoy everything about Mackinac Island and Somewhere in Time, to meet some of the cast and crew, to take part in virtual conversations this year. I wish I were with you. I'm just not ready for commercial flight, but I know you're going to have a great time on Mackinac. There's so many open spaces, I know you can do it safely. So hi to everybody who's there. It was great meeting you last year, and maybe I'll see you next year. And for all of you gathered on Mackinac Island this weekend, and everybody else who wishes they could be there, I've got a great interview for you in this episode of Call Back Yesterday. It's with George Robert Went III, who you know better as Norm on Cheers. Afternoon, everybody. Norm! Norman? How you doing, Norm? Cut the small talk and give me a beer. (laughs) Yeah, George got six consecutive nominations for a Primetime Emmy Award for playing Norm on Cheers for so many years. But there's something you might not know about him. I am the most peripheral character of the entire Somewhere in Time universe. Somewhere in Time was one of George's first movies. Well, it was going to be. We're going to tell that story in just a second. But also, happy birthday, George Went. How appropriate we're playing this episode on this weekend because George was born October 17, 1948. He turned 72 this weekend. And I'm glad to celebrate with a little bit of good news. And that's what you're going to hear in this interview with George Went. George, introduce yourself to the millions of people listening right now to call back yesterday. This is George Went, uh, actor guy, one of the cast members of uh, Somewhere in Time. Take us back to the late 1970s, whenever it was that you first heard about Somewhere in Time being cast, Somewhere in Time happening. Being a Chicago actor at the time, uh, I was uh, on the main stage at Second City, I don't know. Uh, I know they were, you know, heavily poaching uh, Chicago uh, actors for, um, you know, minor roles that they didn't want to send to away to Hollywood for. So uh, Second City, uh, they've hired one, two, three, uh, one, two, three, uh, four, five of us, I believe, from my company, which was um, really a boon, you know. For it was, I believe it was. It was indeed. My first movie. I'd been in, you know, several commercials in Chicago and, uh, of course, Second City, but I was green as could possibly be. Uh, the first movie that I was in that that I did was uh, 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 My Bodyguard, and uh, that also employed a bunch of Second City people. But somewhere in time was just before that. Of course... You know, uh, I had a great time, uh, you know, shooting it and uh, feeling like, you know, one of the cool kids. Uh, There was another fella who was my roommate. Uh, Now, oddly, we were not put up at the Grand Hotel. Uh, Do you recall that? What was the joint where they had us staying? It was on the site of the former Mackinac College, which was the former site of the headquarters of Moral Rearmament. And it was this this giant place called the Inn on Mackinac. 
Yeah, and, you know, it was lovely. Um, you know, uh, it was not the Grand Hotel, which we all thought we were going to be staying at. <laughs> but um, uh, we did fly to uh, Mackinac Island, which, um, you know, that was peculiar. I think it was a, a, a float plane, I believe. Not positive. Um, do they have an airstrip there? Yeah, they have an airstrip there. It's it's uh, right in the middle of the island, and you probably flew up from Pelston. No, it's from Chicago. But even before you got to Mackinac, take us back even further. Did, did you audition for it? I think they just offered it to us because uh, I think uh, they were uh, in pre-production in Chicago for a while, and I think they were bored to tears and um, probably you know looking for uh, people to be in the in the show. I remember. Uh, William H. Macy was uh, my roommate, so to speak. We we uh, we had separate bedrooms uh, in the same suite. It was a, I guess, a two bedroom suite in this Mackinac Inn, or Inn on Mackinac. And uh, so you know that was fun. We got to bond a little bit. I mean, I'd seen him uh, doing Billy the Kid at Saint Nicholas, um, a nearby Second City. And, uh, you know, uh, so Tim Kazerinsky and Audrey Neenan and Larry Coven and Bruce Jarko and I all, I believe, all got offers. You know, and that's peculiar. I thought, oh, this is easy. You just get offers. You grew up in Chicago. Had, had you been to Mackinac before? <clears throat> yes. I was born and raised on the south side and uh went to Mackinac and uh, I believe we flew then. So you knew about it. There there was this cool place way up north where they didn't have any cars. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Taffy and fudge and uh no cars. And uh not much of a beach scene either as I recall. Yeah, it's all rocks and it's freezing cold. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not beachy either. I don't like the sun and I don't like the sand. Um, so well, you're good. You're perfect on Mackinac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's fast forward. You're you're on Mackinac. You're staying at the inn on Mackinac. Do you remember what your scene was going to be? Do you remember what your lines were going to be? Yeah, I don't remember. Um, what I, I remember the scene. Um, there might have been more. There, there was probably two or three scenes. I think uh, we were meant to largely improvise. Maybe that's why we got cast because it was uh, basically. Opening night of uh, Chris's uh, play, and it was a big triumph for a student playwright. Richard, we love the play. (laughs) And uh, I think we're just uh, well wishers, and uh, well, in theory, you know, we we all built a little backstory, uh, probably over the course of a couple hours. Most of my Second City friends were in the 1912 part, so they weren't even there when I was there. But the the opening night, the college part, was uh, Larry Coven as a critic, William H. Macy as a critic, Larry Coven being one of my castmates uh, at Second City, and Bill Macy from down the street, and uh, me as Chris's uh, roommate uh, and best friend. Um, and uh, it's a role I've come to... Uh, you know, appreciate over the decades of my career being the best friend. And uh, fair enough. Um, and I was thrilled to be on board. And, uh, you know, we uh, workshopped a little bit in terms of our relationships. And then I believe we just improvised. And do you remember how and where you found out that you were uh, 
sorry, but not in the picture. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it was very embarrassing. It was a cast and crew screening in Chicago. Everyone in my family, all, I'm, I'm one of seven, and I don't know how many else came, you know, extended family. And so, my, and my mom and dad and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I probably had a contingent of 10 or 12 people. And uh, the movie, st- everyone's very excited, and uh, including me. And the movie starts, and I pass the word along. I'm like, oh. And I passed the word along the line of my family and going, yeah, I think I'm I'm not in this. And they go, what do you mean? It just started. No, I'm pretty sure I got cut. But it just started. Yeah, the part I did uh, has already taken place. And um, I guess they picked up somewhere just after, you know, uh, Chris's uh, triumphant opening night. That's pretty brutal. It was. I was just like mortified and uh, so happy that I did not get cut out of my bodyguard. <laughs> well, if you're going to pick being cut from somewhere in time or getting cut from my bodyguard, mm-hmm. I guess I would pick being cut from somewhere in time because my bodyguard was pretty successful. Yeah. You know, uh, I was very impressed with uh, my bodyguard. Uh, I was disappointed, you know, that uh, somewhere in time, well, A, that I wasn't in it. But uh, B, that um, nobody really seemed to, to like it at the time. And I know it's, it's grown uh, as a cult, uh, I know, enormously. But um, My Bodyguard was a cute little movie. It really worked. Well, you're not alone. Um, I don't know if you've heard ever about the story of uh, Alex North, the composer who wrote a whole score for Kubrick's 2001. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. And he didn't find out that it wasn't used in the picture until he went to the premiere. Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a steep learning curve in uh, movies and um, you know show business in general. But uh, nobody cares about you. You're like the last thing on everyone's mind. I know. It's always seemed weird to me the way Hollywood does this. You don't get a call. You don't get an email, generally. You just kind of find out through the grapevine that you've been cut from the picture. Did you bring your whole family to the premiere of My Bodyguard? No, I did not. (laughs) (laughs) So you were cut from the picture. But but tell me about the experience of filming on Mackinac Island. How long were you there? I don't know. Yeah, it was probably about a week. You know, it's a very vague memory at this point. There's another shocker is... uh, the process was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like how, you know, like really? And, that, and you know, that's lunch and we're just rehearsing and we haven't shot a frame of anything and, you know, that's, and now it's second meal and they're turning the cameras around and what? It was, you know, the process was uh, so painstaking and tedious to me, you know, who's, basically just been improvising like marks i didn't know you know it's like i wouldn't hit my mark and uh it was never seemed that important um to me on stage in an improv review eventually you know like uh one of the grips tossed a a sandbag down uh as my mark and i thought oh awesome this is now i'll remember and i didn't know that that's what they do for the absolute doofuses who 
can't hit their frickin' mark. Oh, that's nice. The, the sandbag acts kind of like as a as the warning track for outfielders in baseball before you hit the wall. Uh, do you remember if uh, Jeannot Zvark, the director, actually directed you? Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, there's not... Yes, he did. And uh, I uh, mean no disrespect, but once again, you know, that they've got so much else on their plate and they're looking at a at a shot literally the literally the the last thing they might look at is some bit parts performance last thing i mean they're looking at background and and the set and uh whether there's a you know a microphone or a boom shadow or something way 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 more important than you know your little thing and you know like i'm sure that like one of my castmates uh, from second city was probably yeah what did you think uh, do you think i ought to and he's like going get me out of here well on the other hand though he probably would have told you if you'd sucked well he probably would have mentioned something if i was looking at the camera or um or sucking or um you know, it's funny, one of our directors at Second City, uh, the legendary improv guru, <laughs> uh, Del Close, um, Google him, it's it's quite a ride. <laughs> uh, Del uh, used to say to start scenes in the middle, and um, sure enough, that's what uh, Geno's work did, by cutting and then the audience figures what's going on anyway. Yeah. But they have to do a little bit of work, so they're more involved, and they can know what's happening, and they pick it up. Yeah. I mean, I forget. I should have screened it, maybe, in prepping for this, but it was the first bit, like, uh, the Susan French says, uh, come back to me or something? I haven't screened it in a little bit. I should have watched it in prep for doing this. <laughs> Where's the fun in that? You watched it with your family. Did you ever watch it again? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I watched it more for, like, my friends, Bruce Jarko, Tim Kazarinski, and Audrey Neenan. So back around 1980? Yeah, yeah. And then since? No, but uh, oddly enough, uh, you know, I wound up, uh, I never worked with Chris, but I uh, got to spend a couple of summers with him. Uh, he, he was uh, a regular at the Williamstown Theater Festival, his upcoming wife, uh, Dana Morissini, uh, played my daughter in an adaptation of Tom Jones. And uh, so, you know, I got to hang out with those guys in, at Chris's house nearby. Christopher yeah. Plummer, now, on the other hand, he had me whacked in uh, Dreamscape. Uh, one of his henchmen shot me with a 9 millimeter automatic point-blank in the chest. In the movie Dreamscape. Now, I did do another time travel movie, sort of in the middle of Cheers, Forever Young. 1992. Time travel, yeah. All right, so you're a veteran of time travel. What are, what are your thoughts about it? It'd be pretty cool. Uh, I, would, uh, I would enjoy it. So where would you go? What would you do? Jeez. If I went back, obviously, in the past instead of the future, that's, I would, that's where I would go. I would probably choose to have like all the uh, technology that I have now. You know, just to have a, a leg up on whoever, you know, the, the poor bastards who did not have that. Okay, John Raby here in the studio. I'm just going to save you some time here. Somehow or other, we got off on the topic of 
teletypes. You know those machines that used to uh, get people the news uh, at radio stations. Um, I'm, I don't know how that happened exactly, but let's just pick up the conversation. And thank you for being uh, forgiving of this uh, kind of lame seg. I worked in the wire room at the Chicago Daily News, speaking of teletypes. Copy boy, uh, summer job between high school and college. It was really a cool experience. I basically worked in the city room of the Chicago Daily News and have to go in the wire room and pull off the uh, the tapes off the wire to hand, and I'd run them over to the city desk. It'd be like, Richard Speck murdered, murdered 11 nurses? You know, like uh, crazy shit like that. I was the jack of all trades. My my uh, big claim to fame was I, because uh, I was on at 6 in the morning. I was 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. So at 6 in the morning, I, I, well, first I had to get disgusting breakfast orders for the city desk uh, and then run over to uh, Billy Goats and get them all like cheeseburgers. I'm going, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. And then I had to uh, clean Mike Royko's office. You know, I mean, I clean out the coffee cups and the ashtrays. And then when he strolled in around noon or something, all the copy boys and copy girls scattered in fear. George Went, this has been a real pleasure. Is, is there anything else you want to add? Uh, any words for Genoz Vark? Anything? I am the most peripheral character of the entire Somewhere in Time universe. Uh, um, I got nothing. Well, peripheral maybe, but one of the most loved. <laughs> Thank you, George. See you down the road, I hope. And that's my interview with George Went, and that's where it could have ended. George is a great talker. He went on to have a great career. He still does a lot of fun stuff. He's a very interesting man, a genial interview. And that would have been that, and that would have been fine. Except that's not where it ends. The beginning of Somewhere in Time takes us to the premiere of of Richard Collier's new play. And we see him shaking hands with everybody, accepting congratulations. And we hear a montage of voices. Richard! I recorded that montage of voices, and I sent it to George Went, and asked him to listen to it, and to see if he could hear himself in the montage. Well, uh, thanks to the forensic detective work by John Rabe, uh, I think I say uh, the word clearly. Which was, I guess I was going to make a a further comment, but a pushy critic, (laughs) one of my fellow Second City classmates, interrupted my train of thought. Now, clearly, George and his wife Bernadette are experts in what George sounded like in 1979. So he says that one word for sure, clearly. But if you keep listening, just a few seconds later, the sound editor seems to have used the whole phrase that George says, which is... Clearly, it's about Vietnam. 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 Makes at least four words, then, that George Went says in Somewhere in Time. I really think uh, that um, in the improvised scene, I was really more interested 
in getting Chris Reeve away from the fawning theater goers and into the party, giving him the high sign, you know, sort of rolling my eyes and just saying, uh, let's get the fuck out of here and have a drink or fire up a, a joint or something. <laughs> the only thing that my wife and I both sort of agree that I say the word clearly. And I, it also might be me saying, dude, you aced it or something like that as we're uh, disengaging from the uh, the theater goers. You aced it, brother. You aced it. You aced it, brother. You aced it. You aced it, brother. You aced it. You know, it's funny. Uh, thanks to John for uh, figuring out that I'm in the voice track. I was so shattered at being cut out of the movie that... Uh, it didn't occur to me that my voice was underneath the titles. So, uh, cool. Bye for now. George wrote me an email. This is too funny. You are a very thorough gent. I always wondered why I was still in the credits and still get residuals, etc. Thank God for my unions. So we've established that George Wentz's voice is in Somewhere in Time. He wasn't entirely cut from the movie. But that's not all. I sent the recording to Bill Shepard the founder of Insight, the fan group. And he said, oh yeah, here's a still photo that somebody shot as they were getting ready to film that scene. And you can see George went in it. And here's a still from the movie. And there's George Went. You can identify him by the corduroy coat that he's wearing. George writes, oh Lord, that sport coat was on the floor backstage at Second City. I didn't own one at the time, so I grabbed that from a pile backstage. So somewhere in time, fans, George Went was not actually cut from the movie. His voice and his image are in the movie, and he can now, without guilt, cash those residual checks. And of course, you can see those photos, courtesy Bill Shepard, at callbackyesterday.com. Callback Yesterday is written, recorded, and produced by John Raby, that's me, with additional sound recording by Ava, the Lilac Queen Sahoyan, and her mom. Um, West Bluff, October 5th, 5.14 p.m. Our theme music is performed by The Van Dyke Parks. Support from Bermuda's Projects in Los Angeles. Special thanks to Chris Greenspawn, host of SGV Weekly, and to graphic designer and punk legend Michael Eulencott, who made my logo penny. Please subscribe. Give me a rating. Tell your friends. Put it up on Facebook. And then come back for the next episode of Call Back Yesterday. Thanks for listening.